Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, welcome to Warrior U. Join retired Special Forces Officer Bram Connolly as he explores resilience, mental toughness, high-performing habits, and other aspects that are required to develop a warrior mindset. Warrior U, it's the performance edge. Hey everyone, it's Bram Connolly here, retired Special Forces Operator and Officer with over 20 years in the Australian Army. Just before we launch into today's show, I want to tell you a little bit about the Warrior U program that forms the basis of the Warrior U website. The program has been designed to help anyone aspiring to join the Australian Defence Force. There's a tailored fitness program based on simple movements that ensures you get from zero to hero in the time frame that you have available. There's lessons on military skills and culture, lessons are self-paced, and there are quizzes to help reinforce the learning. Some of the topics include weapon types, navigation theory, survival, and there's fieldcraft lessons too, just to name a few. There's also a mental resilience block of training. The main aspect of the program though is the access to mentors who've either held positions within the Defence Force recruiting or recruit or officer instructors and even some Special Forces selection staff. So no matter what you want to do in the ADF, we have a mentor to assist and provide advice. There's a one-off payment of $99 for the complete program. Check out the website on www.warrioru.com.au. That's warrior and the letter U. Now, to introduce today's sponsor and then our guest. Hey gang, have you checked out Aussie Strength? It's a company that makes legit workout equipment and it's a veteran-owned business who are not only controlling the narrative but controlling the market. These guys put as much passion and effort into their business as they put into their military service. They have rigs, bumper plates, in fact, thousands of things on their website for all you fitness fanatics. If you're considering fitting out a home gym or a large-scale industrial-type gym, then they've got everything you need. And you just have to check out their website. It's amazing. I'm not joking. I approached these guys to do an advert for them, truly. I was that impressed by their company. Check out the website. And if you use the code WARRIOR10, that's WARRIOR10, you'll get 10% off your purchase. That's Aussie Strength. Check out their Instagram too. Some great motivational content. Let's get on with the show. Anthony, what's the most important thing that an entrepreneur has to do when starting a new business? Boom, straight from the outset. Just going to get a knowledge bomb. That's that's a big question, mate. Um, the, The very first thing is, you know, come up with a concept that uh that you're passionate about that that you can see yourself working on for at least three to five years at least and that you believe there is a business model around because you know like uh back in back in our day mate on day 13 of a selection course when you know morale is low and you're tired and all that kind of thing you, you need to make sure that that passion is is sort of fueling the day um but but that there's a that there's a workable business model there, and so mission success for anyone wanting to start a business should be product market fit. So what that means is that you come up with an idea, you 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 know you come up with a product or a service, 
um, and you're out there and you're testing it into the market and you're going to get told no and you're going to get told no and you're going to get told no again and you keep refining and you keep pivoting until someone kind of says yes. So using a fishing analogy, um, you know, you've worked out that you're using the right bait and you're fishing in the right body of water and then now you know you've got something and maybe you, you do that two or three more times. You get, you get product market fit with, with two or three or, or something like that uh, clients and then you've won. That's phase one, mission complete. That's, um, that's a good analogy. Did it take you a while to come up with that one or is that just something off the top of the head? Oh, I've been playing around with that one for a while, mate. I, oh. I like stories and analogies because it uh, you know, makes, makes what is fairly simple you know, workable and easy to understand. But just because it's simple doesn't make it easy. I've got a feeling that because of our prior history, you've rolled out that analogy and one that's not a little bit more complex. <laughs> Anyway, to talk about to talk about to talk about our prior history. So you and I were founding members of the um, Tactical Assault Group, and I think that you know, based on the amount of people that listen to me that are interested in high performance, they're, they're interested in Australian Special Forces, they're, in, they're interested in the Tactical Assault Group, I guess. And without giving any, you know, um, secrets away, what did you learn from from being a platoon commander? In the tactical assault group, what was what was one of the key lessons that you learned from that? Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a founding member. I think I, I came in on the on the mezzanine floor, if you like. So I was the the first commando captain to, to come into the role. Before that, it was all done by by SAS guys, and um, you know, uh, one guy in particular, uh, Matt Matt S, who who just dominated, and and so I came into that to fill very very big shoes, mm. and what I learned out of that experience was really the definition of a high-performance team, and I've used it kind of ever since. And it was such a high-performance team that other super high-performance teams, like the Wallabies, for example, would come and, and see what was in the water and, and what they could learn from it. So we had an extremely clear mission. We were, you know, post 9-11 we were the we were the golden children. I mean, the, all the politicians were very interested in what we were doing. The whole defence force was very interested in what we were doing, and and we felt that our mission was was absolutely critical to to national security. So we were all focused on one mission, and and so that's the that's the most important thing. Um, everyone there was so motivated, and and so intelligent, and and the way I define that is. My time in the infantry, which, which as an infantry platoon commander for about three years before I, I went through the special forces process and ended up at the TAG, whilst it was a great experience, uh, you know, someone would come in, you know, a young soldier or, or a young corporal would come in with a problem and they'd say, um, boss, we've got a problem. And then they'd hand over to you to come up with a solution. And there's nothing particularly wrong with that, but it's not a high performance team because they didn't, they didn't own it. Whereas what I found at, at you know, Special Forces generally, the tag at that time in particular, was a soldier would come in or, or a corporal or a sergeant or whatever and go, boss, we have a problem. I've thought about it and I can come up with three solutions. My recommendation is that we go with solution two for the following reason, um, because they owned it. You know, we all, we all felt that we owned the capability and were accountable for it. And, and it was an absolutely beautiful thing that, that I certainly haven't had since and, and possibly will, will never again. And while I've had a heap of highlights in my you know, professional and personal life, from understanding and being part of a high performance team, I don't think I'll ever, you know, 
get any better than that. I agree with everything you said. And I think I'd raised a lot of capabilities before in the army, little, little niche things or, you know, like how we, we raised, I was on the first commando commando course for the new generation of commandos, the regular commandos. And I was in the first reconnaissance um, that went over to, we raised a reconnaissance platoon that went over to Timor and then was one of the, well, what was one of the core people at, at raising the new Tag East. But the one thing that I took away from Tag East was not just raising a team, but um, building a culture. And mm. Tim Curtis, who was the who was the OC at the time, he's a friend of mine to this day, and he's actually, I guess I'd call him a mentor if, any, if nothing else. He, That's what I... Yeah, he came in with a, with a set of, he came in with a certain set of um, cultural hooks for us to discuss and and to use as a platform or or as a as a you know uh, what am I trying to say as a as a talking point around all of our behaviours. One of those that I really liked was daily renewable contract. I use it to this day. I sign books with it. You know, it's not mine. It's Tim Curtis's. You're in a you know life is a daily renewable contract. As is your job in the tag. Um, toughness not fitness i guess i've always used that as well in my training you know i'd 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 classify myself as reasonably fit but i'm a lot tougher than i am fit you probably don't know that to look at me um and you know what was some of the other ones conversation not denigration and so i guess Mm -hmm. i guess in in some aspects we got to see what good looks like when you design when you build a brand new culture a culture that had never existed before and that was the, the key thing that i took away from that and you, you went down the entrepreneurial route we'll talk about that a bit more in a moment and i went down the you know i guess a creative writing and and artistic sort of you know developing things like this podcast and worry you which of course you you gave me you know support with but um i'm leading into this with a question so for me one of my most exciting memories of working in the tag was fast roping onto defense plaza at night on nvg and then and then going on to defense plaza and then and then going into the elevator shafts, right? That you know, it's cre- it's it's sort of James Bondish, but at the same time, it's quite kinetic and it's and it's scary, really. Yeah. What would be your most exciting memory of working in the tag? So uh, yesterday, I, I actually caught up with with another ex boss of ours uh, and and mentor of mine uh, to this day. He's still in, so we'll just call him BC. <laughs> and um, and what I loved about his approach was was, and you and I have spoken about this, is this. Uh, extreme accountability and um what i remember you know i guess one of my best times there was the the demos that we used to run to be honest and and so one of my roles was when uh you know a heap of politicians or rugby players or whatever and you know the supreme commander of the of the chinese military uh was one of these ones and he and his entourage of about 50 people were were over in australia to see what was happening with with this capability and I had to give a, a bit of a speech. And then at a particular queue, uh, the lights would go out. And I had these two dummies right next to me uh, with, with targets, you know, maybe three or five centimetres from my left ear and three or five centimetres from my right ear. And then the lights would come out and the guys would come in and fire live rounds into the, into the heads of these dummies. And I could feel the wind going past me as these rounds went through. But I had so much comfort and so much faith in, in the guys that I'd you know, been with for a while. I'd gone through the training with them. 
Um, so I knew I could do that and I knew they could do that. And I was so much more nervous about messing up my speech than one of the guys making a mistake and, you know, shooting me in the ear or, or, the, or the face accidentally. And, I mean, it was just such incredible trust and teamwork. And, and um, you know, again, I, I just don't think I could ever experience yeah. that again. It was just, it was beauty. Yeah. I think you just reminded me of the time that, um, and I think you know what I'm going to say, when uh, when the snipers I was in, in charge of at the time <laughs> um, hit these uh, watermelons and General Cosgrove got covered in in watermelon juice right oh, yeah gold so so that one with the with the um with the chinese supreme commander i still think about that to this day mm. um and you know we can we can get onto the entrepreneurial stuff in a bit but but i'll go into a, a big meeting with you know some big ceo or, or corporate leader or billionaire or something like that and i'll, I'll get nervous going in and i'll remember back to that mm. where this guy was in charge of more people than probably anybody else on this planet. Mm. And um, at the start of the process, uh, you know, it was PowerPoint presentations and he was sort of falling asleep and he was, you know, not very interested, quite frankly. And when he came down to down the back and, you know, there was explosions and helicopters and guns and all of that kind of thing, he was like a kid at Christmas time. And he got an opportunity to, you know, shoot a heap of the weapons that, that we had down there. And his mind just couldn't get him away because he just wanted to play because yeah. he was a kid. Yeah. And it just reminded me that, oh, I realized then, and I use that to remind myself now, we're all just people. Yeah. So it doesn't matter whether someone's, you know, the CEO of, of General Electric or Coca-Cola or, or they're in charge of, you know, a country like Australia or the US or whatever. We're, we're all just men and women and you know we when it's boring we're, we're falling asleep and we're bored and when it's exciting we're we're like a kid at christmas time it's it, that lesson has stood me stood me well to this day yeah it's a good frame of reference to have and it, and it makes me think that it's like when i tell my sons when they when they look up at adults and they're all and they're in amazement of what they're doing i'm like yeah but they're just all faking it too mate yeah yeah and absolutely. some of them are absolutely yeah you know straight from the offset you know, before yeah, for the entrepreneurial piece, what was the motivation for launching Dynamic, and what was the story behind it? Because I know it's quite, it's kind of unique. Yeah, so so the story to Dynamic really starts when I was fourteen. So when all of my mates had basketball players or football players or swimsuit models on their walls, I had a um, blacked out gas mask wearing MP5 carrying counterterrorism assaulter. Yep, and from the same. time I was fourteen, that's all I ever wanted to do. Yeah. And through a whole host of sort of happenstance, I was a fairly junior SF officer. Um, some of the more senior guys were away. Um, I kind of had a Stephen Bradbury moment and, you know, cast past the course where some other guys didn't. So I got my dream job very quickly. And we were over in Perth, successfully passed the course. And it was between me and one other guy on who was going to get this role. And we were at, at this pub and, uh, and, and I got told at the pub that, that it was going to be me and I was going to have this role. And I was so happy because that was the role that had really defined my, you know, that 10 year period from when I was, from when I was, you know, 14 to 25. But so, the, but about literally five seconds after I found out, I had this sunken, sinking feeling, this hollow feeling inside. Um, it was like, whoa, that's, that was my Everest that I'd been working towards for, you know, 10 and a bit years. Now what? So I did the job for, you know, for, for a year and a half or something like that. 
But during that phase, I started asking myself the question, well, well what do I do now? Um, I knew I didn't want to be a general at that point. Uh, I knew that my office, my, my, my role as, a, as an officer was going to take me out away from the soldiers and, um, and from, the, from the guys. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I sort of at an airport picked up this book by a bloke called Richard Branson. And um, uh, I didn't know what entrepreneurism was, but I knew who Richard Branson was. But in this book, he introduced me to this concept called entrepreneurism. And I fell in love with the concept automatically, like immediately, because he was this thing, unlike the big beast of the military, he was this thing where you, you weren't promoted based off time in rank or courses done or something like that. You literally lived and died by your own sword, you know, and, and I guess it's that ultimate extreme accountability. And it really had nothing to do with becoming rich. It, it didn't really have anything to do with, um, I don't know, let's say being Richard Branson or anything like that. It was it was just, wow, here's, here's something that I can start on my kitchen table with a blank sheet of paper. And that excited me so much. And to this day, nothing excites me more than a blank sheet of paper. Because with that, I can create anything. And that was really the motivation. And then from that point, it was a process of developing business plans or really business concepts, doing a, a SWOT analysis or a strength, weakness, opportunities, threats for all of these different business concepts. And they were wacky, man. I mean, mobile juice vans, coffee carts, leadership academies, wellness retreats. And there was one which was more focused on, you know, counterterrorism and hostage rescue and security and crisis management and evacuation. And, and that one won because um, I guess it was the only one that I could get a foot in the door with. You know, who's, who's going to come to me about, I don't know, a wellness retreat, for example? What do I know about that? But at least with this, I had some sort of knowledge base, some sort of background. So it was a relatively pragmatic approach that I took. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to start a business. I wanted to do that from scratch. Um, and I wanted to do that because I knew that the way I learnt was through action and by doing. And it's always been that. You know, I was just never – I could never sit down in class. I could never absorb information the traditional way. But I, I learned by doing it. I learned by making mistakes. And I thought about taking a more traditional path, you know, going and doing a, an MBA, going and working in a big business, and, and then maybe after five years or so starting my own thing. And that would have been the smart thing. It would definitely would have been less risk adverse, uh, less risky rather. And, and I kind of recommend it, you know, to people because my path was certainly much more of a, a white knuckled ride. You know, it's sort of one of the definitions of, of entrepreneurism um, is it, it's a little bit like jumping off a cliff and working out how to build a plane on the way down. And, and that's the path that I took. You don't have to do that. And mm -hmm. I'd kind of recommend, you know, to people listening this, don't necessarily do that or treat that as, a, as an option of last resort. But I knew it was the way that I was going to learn so that, and, 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 and grow fast. So I, I made myself a promise that I would go hard I would be fearless in the face of mistakes, but I promised myself that I would only make those mistakes once. And I made thousands of them, um, but pretty much, you know, I only made them once and, and I learned from them and, and I surrounded myself with people who were more experienced than me and smarter than me to, to help me not make mistakes. But, but it was all done at a million miles an hour moving forward. Mm. What was the way that you set the business up like how did you go about getting it launching it from zero to sort of hero and how'd you win clients yes. 
I had a, I had a vision of what I wanted it to be, and so I, so I set that very very clearly, um, and then quite frankly, then I started. So the my fear was paralysis by analysis. So my fear was that I was going to do so much theory work or so much background work or so much business planning that I was never actually going to start. So quite frankly, there wasn't a lot, man. You know, there, there was no 200-page business plan and, you know, I didn't engage a, a lawyer or an accountant to help me develop complex models. I just sort of went. And, and I just started calling people and saying, hey, you know, I'm this guy and I, I sort of, there was definitely a fake it before you make it for a really long time. And, and I don't really mean faking the product, faking the, you know, the, the, the client solution. Cause I, I really started off with doing, doing risk assessments just by myself. I was just a one man show, but I never wanted to be that. So I was always focused on working on the business, not in the business mm. as much as possible, as quickly as possible. But one of the one of the things that I did back at the tag, actually, the US president was coming out, and one of my jobs was with a with a team of of great guys was to go around uh, all the all the locations that he was visiting. So Parliament House and Air Force an Air Force base where Air Force One was going to land, uh, the War Memorial, um, the US Embassy, a couple of other places, and we got a, a lay of the land. It was called a, a tactical site survey. Um, we got a lay of the land, basically developed plans so that if something were to happen, for example, while he was at Parliament House, we had a, a plan in place and, and during the actual event, we were literally parked um, with a heap of helicopters and all of our gear just at a defence base over the hill uh, at an extremely short notice to move, ready to go in and hit the target in case something goes wrong. And during that planning phase, I was I was in a suit, you know, the army gave me a business card and I was out interacting with civilians. And so it was really that experience of that doing that risk work that that really set dynamic up. So I, I knew I could do that mm. because I'd kind of done it at arguably one of the highest levels. And so when I was literally cold calling people and saying, hey, you're an oil and gas company, um, I'm a risk guy, you know, maybe we should catch up for coffee. I was using that previous experience as the as the backbone, and then that led to another service and another service and another service. But th- that's how it all kicked off. I say this in a lot of the podcasts I do with with entrepreneurs and and those that are successful, especially my ex special forces friends. I I quite often um, say that I've found the secret to their success, and while it might not be the secret to their ultimate overall success, it's certainly the secret to their start, which is that they didn't wait for permission. That is, they didn't wait for some lofty, you know, thing from the universe, some signal to say it's your time. And they didn't, you know, they they weren't so institutionalized that they waited for, you know, General Hurley or uh, soon to be Governor General Hurley telling them, telling them, uh, yeah, you can do this. They've just gone and and grabbed an opportunity and ran with it. And I think you you grabbed that opportunity and ran with it from, from a kitchen table with not much money from my understanding. Yeah, so uh, nineteen thousand dollars we we kicked it off with. Um, but we, my wife and I, kicked it off with. Um, yeah, as you said, you know, from my from my kitchen table. So, yeah, I, I think, and, and it goes really to the heart of my philosophy. And I, I couldn't articulate it like this then, uh, like I can now. But it's certainly the heart of my philosophy mm. now. That that life is not something that happens to you. Life is not a ladder to climb. You know, we're not, we're not here to learn stuff. We're not we're not here to go through school and tick those boxes and go through university or whatever and tick those boxes and keep going like there's like there's some end goal that some you know 
parent or teacher or whatever higher being is is there telling us that we have to do it's life is life is there for us to create however we want to create it and so innately i've always felt that i've marched to the beat of my own drum i did then i do now and so you know for example my mum and dad were both in the health field i joined the infantry and desperately wanted to be a counterterrorism guy shooting guns mm. and that was there was no one in my family from the military, zero, like going way, way back. So that was completely out of the box. And so from that out of the box into another out of the box uh, with the entrepreneurial thing, it, it came fairly naturally to me. All I knew was that I had an urgency. You know, I, I couldn't wait two years or four years to get another great job that I wanted. You know, that two years or four years in my mind just felt like forever. And it still does, quite frankly. I mean, I mean I've got an urgency yeah. And the urgency, the urgency isn't speed. It's not, you know, I have to, it, it's not a, it's not a stressful thing. It's, you know, I, I want to fill my cup of life with, with as many amazing experiences as I, as I can. And, and I'll be doing that to the day I die when, whenever that may be. And so leaving the military when I did, I mean, it didn't have to happen like that. And, and in fact, you know, when I was exiting, I said, Hey, I'm going to go and try this stuff because, because I feel I need to, I don't want to leave that question unanswered. Mm. Um, but please, please, if it doesn't work, if I feel a hunger to come back, like don't shut the door Yeah. at the same time, you know, one of my definitions of success was that I never had to go back to the army and I, I never had to do reserve time. And not that there's anything wrong with that. It actually would have been a way smarter thing for me to do. But, but I was on a mission to move forward and, and not to do that. And that worked out really, really well. But it was also the, the, the basis of one of the biggest mistakes I made. And the biggest mistake I made was that instead of using all of the amazing systems and lessons I learned through the military, and, and really I'm talking the softer stuff, like, like leadership and management and working with teams and creating an amazing culture like we had at the TAG, I, I sort of said in my head, right, that was the military. This is completely different. This is business. And instead of standing on the shoulders of my previous experience, I kind of dumped it and moved. And it took me a long time to work out the, the folly in that. And, you know, now I've kind of, I'm bringing it all together. So hopefully it's more powerful now. But um, yeah, you know, it could have been a lot better if I just had have taken that and, and crafted it slightly rather than put it all in a box and put it in the cupboard, if that makes sense. I think that's a brilliant insight. And I, I quite often talk to people who are transitioning out of the military and say, don't forget where you came from, because actually that's what makes yeah. you quite employable. What was a turning point for Dynamic? What was a turning point for the company, the point where you did a job or something happened that you then suddenly found yourself very popular amongst those sort of companies that were looking for a crisis and emergency management solution? Yeah, so I think the, the really big one, big win, the big opportunity, the breakout moment was... Uh, um, so I'd been, I'd basically been, I'd been trying to get into the insurance industry because, because that's right from the start, the opportunity that I wanted to drive. I knew nothing about insurance, but, um, but I, I had something to do with, you know, um, some very large companies who were working to, into the insurance game. So providing risk services and specifically evacuation services into that game. So I was just basically cold calling insurance companies and trying to get meetings and trying to move up the chain. And I was, I was, I was close to getting some deals with some really big ones. Um, the big companies just move so slowly. And, um, and so they, they wasted a lot of my time. They didn't mean to. It's not their fault. It's just their process moves so slow. 
so we had this one small client and uh, and they'd moved their insurance program over to this company called Accident and Health International, which were a, a travel insurance company. Um, and in our world, they were providing insurance cover for medical evacuations and security evacuations. And I walked into this meeting with this and met this met their managing director, who's an entrepreneur through and through. Uh, and he'd, he'd been going for about 10 years. And I, I had about a 45-minute speech that I'd given, God, who knows, 20, 30 times at this point. And I kick off. And after about five minutes, he goes, stop right there. Stop right there. I've heard enough. And I thought I was about to get kicked out of yet another boardroom. And he goes, right, I get it. What you're doing with, with that one client, can you do that with all of my clients? I've got 200,000 travelers and 20,000 expats. And I thought about it for a second. I said, yeah, sure, absolutely we can. Not really knowing how we were going to do that, but I knew we could. We could scale this, what we had. And um, we shook hands. And then we spent another 15 minutes talking about the financial deal. And then we shook hands again. And we started a national rollout of, of, of this sort of new capability literally the next week. And what's so cool is that that handshake deal lasted for the next eight years. And we never put anything in writing. And it was just you know, beautiful. And he, he saw something in me and something in us that he recognized and he, and he saw an opportunity for him to grow his business. And he also saw an opportunity to, I guess, give a young guy a go. Uh, his name's David Epper and he's still one of my, you know, closest, you know, professional and personal, um, I guess, mentors and colleagues and, and friends. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll be in ever uh, indebted to him. And now I've guessed that I'm nowhere near as successful as him, at least not yet. But now that I've kind of been through this a while, you know, now my focus is on kind of doing the same. You know, it's about giving back and, and trying to help some young guys come through and, and achieve some success. It's it's really beautiful. I met I met David Epper in uh, I think it was in Melbourne, and um, he has a he has a real force of presence about him. A, a kind yeah. a, he's kind, he's very kind, very. But there's a he's something special that's for sure. I, I felt that. And I've felt that a few times with people in the military and outside the military, especially the ones that are uh, intellectual giants where you're sort of just, you're talking to them and it's like, oh, I don't even know what to respond to that. But um, yeah, I, I quite like David. He's had a very warm persona. Yeah, it's a special gift, uh, someone that can can talk kind of up and down the chain equally well, mm. you know, so can can be extremely personable and friendly you know, let's say in a military contact with the soldiers or, or in a, a business contact with, you know, junior employees or, or junior employees from other organisations and be very approachable. But at the same time, they're, yeah, as you said, you know, an intellectual giant that can, um, mm. you know, that can, that can shape their own future and, and convince, you know, let's say CEOs of extremely big businesses to, to, to get them on board. He's a, he's a solid operator. What are you most proud of with Dynamic? The alumni. So, um, um, and I think about this a bit because I think about. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. My mistakes way more than my successes because I think they're powerful learning instruments. Um, but it, it was only 
it was only the other day, you know, I was, I was sort of just going through a list, not a definitive list. It's not like I was looking through a list of ex-employees, but I was just rattling off all of these um, men and women that that have, that have come and gone. You know, some some stayed for one year, some stayed for God, some still there. So it's like what 13, 14 years. But just just the the yeah the people that are whether they're inside dynamic or, or many of them outside dynamic, just doing amazing things, and just to know that you know. For, for a period of time, however long that was, you know, we had a connection and maybe they learnt some stuff, uh, you know, maybe good and bad and have gone on to do amazing things. Um, that's that's what I'm most proud of. It's, it's awesome. That's that's a great answer. What are you least proud of? <laughs> Juxtaposed. Yeah, I'm least proud of feeling like because I had because I was trying to be a big business guy and because I felt business was serious, I felt like I had to take myself very seriously and therefore... I kind of lost myself, to be honest. You know, I'm a, I'm just a kid, mate. I'm, I'm still in touch with my inner child, and I'm trying to do that more and more every day. And, and, and I lost that for a while. And, and I think the, I think my, um, my interactions with the organisation kind of affected that. You know, I, I went, I created the thing with purpose, mm. but then because I was trying to be a big business guy, then I became all about you know cash flow and ROI and blah blah blah. And, and I could have done both, um, and and I didn't have the business maturity to be able to do both. You know, lesson learned, and, and hopefully I'll, I'll never repeat it. But yeah, I, I think culturally it was awesome, particularly early on. Um, and it's not to say it's not now, um, but you know, it's, it's it's my retrospective. But yeah, I think culturally it could have been even more amazing had I have not taken myself so seriously. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. How how important were mentors? in i guess both in the army and in in dynamic did you have any mentors in dynamic oh mate um indispensable and one of the things that i do now when i'm when i'm you know working with with um inexperienced entrepreneurs or young entrepreneurs is i I talk to them about how to how to get a good set of mentors around them and and i think anyone listening to this podcast i think i think it's it's an important thing to understand. It's important. It's important thing to think about if you're looking at something different or you're looking to improve whatever you are doing now. And you know, one one of my favourite quotes is that you are the you are the, the average of the five pe- people that you spend most time with. And so, if you want to improve yourself in my context, entrepreneurially, I just want to be a, a, a better business leader. Um, so I, I made sure that I, I got people around me who were just more experienced and smarter. So we've spoken about David Epper. Uh, another great one is, is a guy called Mike McGrath. And after about two years at Dynamic, I remember getting the end of the end of um, year results. And, you know, he, here's this guy bumbling around, um, trying to work it out. And then we went, you know, started with 19 grand, as I said, zero revenue. And then I get the end of year results and it's like a million dollars. Oh my God, this is a real business. Like, I've got to take this seriously. I need some help. And I started ringing around to management consultants. And I didn't know what I wanted, but I knew what I didn't want. And what I didn't want was someone that had maybe done a Harvard MBA kind of thing, and but had never started anything themselves. And it's not to say that that stuff's bad in any way. And it's not to say that I couldn't have learned from it, but so many of my issues and challenges and problems with with the startup stuff you know it's it's part business part like just i don't know creative stress it's like a a, a, it's like an author who's trying to sell a book man and um and and in that need of validation or something like that anyway i was getting all of these 
theoretical crap thrown back at me that, that I didn't want. And I got hold of this guy by chance. His name was Mike McGrath, and I'm, I'm still in touch with him. He's brilliant. And he goes, look, Ant, this is my story. And he told me his story. We won't get into it. But the crux of it is is that he started early. He did his own thing. He, he, he made so many mistakes. Um, and he kept going, kept going, and, and built something and sold it and started something else and changed something. And he goes, get me in for one day. I'll tell you three things to do to fast track your business. And, and then he just became part of my team from, from an external point of view, you know, for the next 11 years. And he, and he was there through all the phases of growth. And, and it was just priceless because he, he had no ego, man. Like he was there to help me. Mm. And so he wasn't talking himself up. He wasn't talking about how amazing he was um, and how impressive his theories or, or education was. It was, it was all about, our business and he was trying to help so so he was listing through all the mistakes that he'd made that he could identify that we were on course to make and and trying to help us not make the same mistakes and and so and so i've got you know heaps of guys around me now like that you know guys like mike randall who's one of my best friends in in the us who had just done a heap of 100 mile races and and i wanted to do that and so he he taught me how to do that and and he's a, a friend and mentor to this day you know there's there's millionaires, there's billionaires, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's Uber drivers who are, who are, you know, um, competitive uh, yoga athletes. Um, yeah. So there's mentors can come from all aspects of life, but the great thing about a mentor is that you don't necessarily have to pay them. And so you're able to get incredibly good advice to improve yourself or whatever project you're working on. Um, almost risk-free, yeah. if, if that makes sense. But but the drama is finding a good one. And a good one is someone who you feel within your heart is is truly doing it to improve you and they're not focused on themselves, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense, considering I put myself out there and the very thing we're talking about. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and you know, having said that, I'm a big believer in mentors having mentors, um, yeah. coaches having coaches. You mentioned ultra marathons. Yeah, I'm thinking about giving one a crack myself, primarily because you've done it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I've heard you say once before that being comfortable and happy is a cause of so much of our modern world unhappiness, which I, I fully relate to. Because for me, um, a burden... I guess Jordan Peterson sums it up better than I can, but having a burden or being being uncomfortable makes you feel more alive and gives you a reason to be alive. So what was your reason for getting into ultra marathons? What was the attraction there? And where do you, what dark places do you go in your mind's eye during those? Yeah, so there's a variety of aspects to it. Um, you know, one, just to declare it is ego. Yeah, um, I'm 40 years old now, and I, I still like to convince myself that that if I had to do special forces selection course tomorrow, I could. And so, you know, doing a hundred mile uh, running race at uh, 13,000 foot altitude um, with you know whatever it was, 20,000 foot of of, um, of of climbing of elevation, you know, seemed like something that was a, a worthy enough kind of target that that could prove the worth of my ego so we'll get we'll get get out of that because it's got to go way deeper than that but you know that probably initiated the the um the the interest i think the other one was i'm just not one of these guys who can keep fit for fitness sake you know i'm I'm useless at just going to the gym three times a week and you know and, and 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 being healthy i just can't do that i've got to have an everest to climb and so we moved over to a place called Boulder, Colorado. It's one of my 
favourite places in the world still. And, and we've actually just got back to Australia from there. We've been over there for four years as a family. Loved it. Love it. Uh, and we'll can continue to, 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 to be a part of that community because it's taught me so much. But we got over there and and I heard about this race called the Leadville 100. And it just has a history and an aura to it. And it's, you know, right up high in the Rockies. And um, it was just so epically big that it was motivating for me. And, I mean, at that point, I don't know, I was, I was jogging, you know, 10k here 5k there i've certainly done marathons um but i've never done anything over a very flat road marathon and so in fairly typical <laughs> ant morehouse fashion i instead of doing the logical smart thing of you know doing a 45k and then doing a, a 50k and then doing a, a 100k I, I sort of just you know tried to eat the, the elephant in in one bite and and just go for this this epic race and you know very fortunately you know I had this massive question of how the hell am I going to get ready for this thing? Um, and then someone introduced me to this guy, Mike Randall, and, and then we just started training together and he'd, he'd, he'd done a heap of them and he was in the community. But the, the motivation was really just the sheer epicness of it. And I wanted to see what I was capable of when there was no reason to do it. So special forces selection was epically hard and you go to some really dark places but it also had a, a really big motivation, like, like, um, you know, it was for my country. Um, I'd wanted it to do it for, for a very long time. Uh, there, there was professional uh, accomplishment out of it. We got paid a lot more. Um, and even to a point, my wife was in the medical corps and she had to get posted before me. And so we had a decision or she had a decision. Was she going to stay in Townsville just in case I didn't get in? Was she going to stay in Townsville so that we would be together? Or was she going to go to Sydney so that if I got in, um, you know, we'd be together? And and the risk was that if she went to Sydney and I didn't get in and I was back in Townsville, then we were going to be apart. So we decided that she would go to Sydney to give me even more motivation to to go. So I wanted nothing to fall back on. I, di- I didn't want to. I didn't want there to be that dark, dark moment, you know, on on day thirteen where it was like, oh, you know what? Sarah's back in Townsville, so so I should probably, you know, call it quits. I didn't want any of that, and it worked out. But I was fascinated to see what I was capable of when I had none of that. It was just me, and it was just the, 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 the inner fire to see whether I could do this. And so I was, I was pretty undercooked. You know, I'd, I'd trained, but I was by no means a, an elite athlete. Um, and... Um, you know, you basically start at four o'clock in the morning and, and the cutoff is, is 30 hours. Um, and so there's three massive peaks and you've got a vest on and every every about seven or eight miles, there's an aid station. And, and ultimately, you know, it's an eating contest. I mean, you've got to get so many calories into you over 30 hours when you're, when you're running and walking uphill over that time that you've got to be able to eat on the run. You've got to be able to stay awake. You, you've, you've got to be able to make sure that you don't, overexert yourself so staying in control in those early phases was was so important and then it just gets to a point where your body is just mangled you know toenails are, are, are coming off and knees and feet and hips and back and everything's hurting and and your brain starts convincing you that this is just dumb and um and you can't do it and everybody else is better than you and so you got to put that on hold and and then it gets to a point where your brain's just got nothing left. 
and your body really doesn't have anything left and and then it's something else mm. you know so i'm going to i'm going to call it a soul um and it, i don't necessarily mean in a religious sense or whatever or spiritual sense or whatever mm. but mm. there's something else there man and and after about I don't know. It was dark. It was, it was maybe I'd be going for 20 hours and I was behind pace and, and this third element just, just lit on fire. Mm. And, um, and I didn't look back. And, and in fact, I, I sped up a lot and, and, and towards the end, you know, the last man, 10 miles, because in your brain, you're going, yes, I'm nine tenths of the way through. That's 90%. I'm almost there. And you've still got 10 mile, uh, sorry, um, yeah, we, we, you, sorry, it's 100, 160k race, yeah. So you've got, you got 10 miles to go, 100 mile race. That's a freaking long time to go. And and, and it gets really, really dark because you're worrying about meeting the cutoff and mm. you're worried about, um, you know, all of the self-worth that you attach to that. But, but man, I wanted it. I mean, I just wanted that so bad. Mm. And, and it got me through. And, and that's what I wanted to test. You know, how, how bad do I actually want this? And, and what, what is my kind of body, mind and soul able to do when, when I want something that doesn't matter yeah. at all? You know, my kids were healthy and safe. So that, that wasn't, you know, relevant. My, my wife was happy and safe. So that wasn't relevant. There was no money on the line. There was no professional accomplishment on the line. It was, it was just a, a silly little belt buckle and, and a silly little thing, you know, that, that I wanted to see whether I could do. And what I learned from that is, well, and, and then I had to do it again the next year. So I, I needed to prove that it wasn't a one-off. Um, and, and that was even more incredible in some respects because I was, I had, the cutoff on that one was 36 hours, and I, but I wanted to come in under 30. And with, a, with maybe five hours to go, um, I was behind my target. And that was an interesting one because at, at, I was on pace to finish, you know, tick. I was on pace to get the belt buckle tick, but, but I had another goal. And, and I found something within myself on that second one that that is really hard to describe. But man, it just it just clicked, and I and I went and, and even after 25 hours of, of high altitude running, you know, my, my body was just doing stuff that I didn't know it could do when I was fairly well rested. Mm. Um, and so, what was really cool about that is that I kind of proved that I had that. And, and what's even better about it is that everyone's got it. That was my particular thing at that particular time, but everyone's got that within them. It's just not many of us know it. And there's this um, Japanese um, philosophy, and I can't remember the name of it, but it's basically that everybody should do something once a year that is so mega that it has an impact for the rest of the year. Mm. And I don't think it really matters what it is. You know, it could be a, I don't know, a, a chess challenge. Um, uh, or, or a hot dog into eating contest. You know, I don't think, maybe not that one. I don't think it really <laughs> matters, but something something that's epic enough that, that kind of imprints on your DNA. Mm. And and those races were, were that for me. And you know, and now whatever whatever's next, I'll, I'll be on to the to the next one. And it'll probably be something slightly different. But what I love about those races is that it's if you're not fully into it, body, mind, and, and soul then you just can't pull it off. I'm going to do the 24-hour True Grit um, Enduro race oh, if you're keen. Dude, that's, that's epic. And, and in some respects, a whole different challenge because, yeah. you know, it's one thing to just sort of put your head down and, and, and yeah. walk for, you know, walk and run for up, up and down hills at altitude for mm. 30 hours. It's a whole different thing to be 
climbing ropes and, and going through obstacles and, and all of that kind of stuff. But um, when is it? Uh, I think that one's in September or October in in Sydney next year. So we got right, we got we got a bit of time to train. I think Adam McNamee will be happy to see us there. Um, hey, mate, what gets you out of bed? I'm I'm, all, I'm always working on ideas. You've got something on the go now, right? Yeah, I've got a few things on the go now. Um, you know, all, all, all focused on, on a similar kind of thing, which is which is ultimately um, kind of being an entrepreneur, entre- entrepreneur's entrepreneur. So mm. I, I realised that as good as Dynamic was, and I've got a great uh, business now uh, called Front Range Outdoor Living over in Colorado, and and, and my business partner on, on that has now taken that over and running the day to day guy called Jade Pender, who's a yeah you know, only a 28 year old guy, but his his life has been so eventful that you, that I talk to him at, at least as a peer and and it's funny you know he's he's 28 but but he's lived a life that many 60 or 70 year olds haven't um anyway so so he's 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 doing that and I'm sort of supporting on the strategy stuff at the back end uh and then I'm back on the sunshine coast and there's a there's a project developing there around around I guess helping entrepreneurs to grow their business and that's that's really exciting and and, and you know maybe doing some sort of strategy work etc so there's a, there's another project that I'm that I've, I've been working on for about two years around women's safety, um, particularly in, in India, um, and it's had a few starts and a few stops, and and hopefully 2019 will 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 bring bring that back up. But what really gets me up in the morning is is just the excitement of of pushing a project forward that's never been done before, and it's not every single morning. Some mornings suck, you know. You can't you can't wake up every morning, jump out of bed, you know, excited, excited for the challenge ahead because sometimes the challenge is daunting. But there's always a challenge there, and 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 what I love about pretty much all of it is that is that it's on me from the second I get out of bed to determine how much impact I have in a day. And and I learned a fairly long time ago that you know the the clock in clock out mentality, the how many hours can I spend on this this business or problem or project or solution today just just doesn't do it so so what i'm obsessed about is impact and and that impact could come in like one hour uh or maybe it takes 12 but you know i jump out of bed thinking about okay how how do i have the maximum amount of impact on the goals that i'm trying to set for myself today and some of those are personal um you know with my family some of those are, are fitness um and and challenge related physical challenge related and, and some of them are, are, are professional and, um, and, and, and every day is awesome because when, when you're thinking about how to have impacts, then, then it's a challenge and, it, and it's exciting and, and, it's, mm. and it's not about problems or, or, or daunting tasks. It's, it's about, you know, slaying dragons and, and yeah, ha- having impact towards whatever your goals are. So I'm, I'm, I am and will always remain fairly goal-orientated. Um, and, and now what I'm trying to really do really with my life is, and, and Boulder, Colorado taught me this is that I've got to learn how to make some money now. You know, I, I think not that I'm perfect at it and, and I still make a lot of mistakes, but I've kind of got a rough idea on the formula. Um, and therefore, and therefore it's sort of not enough of a challenge. And so there's this, there's this term that, that I learned over in Boulder, it's the triple crown and it's make money. I'm, unapologetic about that um make some money nothing wrong with that while doing good while having a lot of fun doing it and and it kind of makes the the challenge 3x because um if the only goal is to make money then you might take on a client or or or, or take on an employee or go into business with someone who who can help you make money 
but but they might be a real prick and not someone who is focused on having fun at the same time or or or, or doing good or the business might be something that you know can make a lot of money but isn't actually going to have a positive impact on the world and you know that just doesn't excite me anymore so what really gets me out of bed is 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 working on this this triple crown challenge and and trying to you know trying to work work out how to how to do all three of those things simultaneously but let's check back in in 10 years time I felt really, um, when I first started making money off Warrior U to put back into the business even, and even sponsorship from this podcast, when I first started making money off other people rather than from a government department, I I almost felt ashamed to take it. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. I I understand that. And, And I think that, at least from my point of view, and I've thought a lot about this over the years, really around all the mistakes I've made. And it was like, okay, that was a mistake. Well, that was, that was, you know, that was an error. But was my heart in the right place? And and the ones that I kind of, re- that turn into regrets, let's say, are the ones where, you know, my heart wasn't in the right place when I did that. But the ones that I go, yeah, fair play, you screwed things up, but man, your heart was in the right place. You were trying to do the right thing for the right reason. Then I'm good with that. Mm. And, and I think in terms of, you know, you, you said taking money from other people. I, I think it's, is it a fair exchange? So it's just an exchange of energy. Money, money is just a currency, literally currency. You think about currency like energy. Oh, yeah. And so where it's a fair exchange of currency, it's energy. You know, so if you and I are in a conversation right now. Mm. We're exchanging energy and, and, Really, whether this is going to be a good podcast episode or a bad podcast episode mm. is going to be determined on whether the listener feels like they're, they're getting, they're receiving that energy and it's positive and they're getting something out mm. of it. And so, so a transfer of money is a transfer of energy and, mm. it, and it's a transfer of a service or a good or an experience um, for another form of currency in, in this way, in, in, in this one, um, money. Yeah. And so money in itself isn't good or bad. It's just a it's just a source of energy. And you can then take that energy, money, and use it for a variety of things. You know, you could buy a fancy car to to help prop up your ego. Or produce, or you produce invest more energy. It back into the to the to the source right. and make the make the energy even bigger. And yeah. that's what you're talking about right now. Yeah. So you can have even more of an impact and yeah. do even more good. Mm. Um, and so I don't think you should feel guilty about that in any way, as long as the person handing over the money feels like it's a fair exchange. Yeah. And and I think that the, the you know the, using that example, really the definition of of shadiness of a scam uh, is where someone is being ripped off. They mm. they think they're getting something, and so they hand over their hard earned energy mm. money, and they actually get something else, mm. and they come out of that feeling ripped off. Mm. But if if the person who's handing over the, the money feels like they're getting a fair exchange, mm. nothing to feel guilty about, about, mate. It's it's brilliant. Yeah. No, that's good. I needed to hear that. No, it is good because I do feel like I put a lot of energy into it and I try and upsell at every opportunity. And not upsell, but I try and give yeah. them more than more than what they're expecting. Yeah, um, it's great. Yeah. yeah. So, Anthony, I want to thank you. I know you're busy and you're on the road. I'm going to go and listen to this all again because there's some really good, you know, knowledge stuff in there. And your journey's been quite unique, I think. But before we go, there's obviously a lot of people in, in let's say, in infantry, in the army, in the ADF, but in infantry, um, perhaps officers like you and I were, or maybe you know, maybe um, sergeants and some corporals and the like who are, who are thinking about getting out and becoming entrepreneurs. 
what advice would you have for them on that to take that first step that first journey as an entrepreneur outside of the outside of infantry um well the first thing i would say is really think about not doing it first and foremost because it is freaking hard and it is lonely and uh, the, 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 there's not a lot of romance to it. There's many, many other ways to earn a dollar that are far less risky uh, and, 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 and far less potentially damaging to your own mental health, to your physical uh, and emotional and, and, and mental health, uh, emotional health, uh, to your family. And so to do it, man, you've got to have a fire. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is you've you got to weigh up your risk, uh, your risk tolerance. So, so my risk tolerance is through the roof, right? So I want big rewards and I'm prepared to take big risks. And way more importantly than that, my wife and I, who, while she's not necessarily involved in my business, she's my business partner. Because if this screws up, if whatever I'm doing screws up, it's, it's our business, which is, you know, our our retirement, our kids' future, that's the thing that's really going to suffer. So linking to that, if you're determined to do it and, and you've determined that the risk appetite that you have links to, um, you know, the risk management that you're, that you're prepared to put in play. If you have a lower risk a- uh, appetite than I do, which which would probably be smart, then, then you're putting more um, steps in play to protect your downside risk. And that's ultimately what it's about, right? So it's about, okay, how do I grow something that has an exponentially high potential return? And how do I make sure that the potential downside risk is as low as possible? And, and that's, that's the definition of, of, of entrepreneurship in, in, my, in my eyes. And so there's that. And then the next bit is if you have a significant other, yeah, a, a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend or whatever, know that they are in this with you and therefore make sure they're along for the journey mm. that this is something that they want to do as well. Whether they're involved in the business at all is irrelevant because they're along for the journey. And then finally, finally after all of that, because that's the most important stuff, then it's about, okay, well, what sort of business do I want to start? And, and how big do I want to grow it? And how am I going to get out of it? How am I gonna how am I gonna exit? Because if you don't have that stuff sorted out, then you're in essence, even if you're starting your own business, you're really just buying yourself a job. Uh, if you're not gonna scale it to, to to where it's big, then you're just buying yourself a job. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's awesome if that's what you want to do, but but it's a distinct difference. And have an eye on the prize from a when you're gonna get out of it. And it could be 30 years down the track. That's absolutely fine. But once you know that, then you can start reverse planning and, and work out how to, you know, how to how to get into it. Um, and and then it's about how you get funded. Yeah. And um, it could be from you know from savings in the bank. It could be from family and friends. And 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 it could be. And this is the best way, is to bootstrap it. And and bootstrapping means you start with very little. So I started with nineteen thousand dollars. You could start with five hundred dollars. You could start with fifty dollars, literally. Um, and then you get out there and do stuff for other people in exchange for money, and you use that money to double down, and then double down, and then double down, and you know, a hundred dollars turns to a thousand dollars, turns to ten thousand dollars, and that's bootstrapping a business, and it's the best way to go. Yeah. Um, and 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 really, the really, that's well. it. But yeah. if you are doing it to be Elon Musk, if you're doing it to be Mark Zuckerberg, know that 
that was not their intention. They they just happened upon really freaking brilliant ideas at exactly the right time. And for whatever reason, you know, it worked out a certain way that was never their intention, was never their plan. But it's a little bit like picking up the guitar, not for the love of music, not to, you know, maybe, maybe start a band and sort of get going and see where it goes. Picking up a guitar in order to become Dave Grohl, it, it's not necessarily the, the right motivation. So I think that's all super important. And finally, finally, make sure it's not something that should remain a hobby. So, so many cafes start and close down. So many restaurants start and close down. So many breweries and wineries start and close down because the people who have started them love drinking coffee, love drinking wine, love eating out. And so they start a business around their hobby mm. um, and they were never really into it for the business. They wouldn't, and potentially after putting in it, their life savings into it, it collapses. And so... Ask yourself that question. And, and if, if your love of something, if the, if the love of your hobby is something that you want to keep doing, then think about keeping it as a hobby uh, before transitioning it into a, into a business. Because once it becomes a business, to be honest, it loses some of its purity. Mm. You know, it, it's now about earning cash. And, and um, so, yeah, I, I, think, I think all of those things are going to be more relevant to some people than others. But you know, there are many other ways to, to earn a dollar before um, getting out and being an entrepreneur. But hey, man, I love it and I'll be doing it forever. And it's, it's you know, what I was always meant to do, I think. So I'm definitely not talking it down. Anthony Morehouse, awesome advice. Thanks for your time, mate. Ben Connolly, I appreciate it, mate. Thanks very much. Thanks, man. Obstacle racing is all the rage across the world. And here in Australia, we are sport for quality. If you want to test your physical and mental toughness, then get outside and compete in True Grit. It's a military-inspired obstacle course. I know it's legit because I served in Special Forces with a co-founder and managing director, Adam McNamee. And to celebrate our bromance, the good dudes at True Grit have created a discount code for listeners of this podcast. Use the code WARRIORU2019, that's WARRIORU2019, for 10% off every one of the 2019 events. And hopefully, I'll see you there wearing one of my Warrior U t-shirts. Catch you, gang. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.